Okay, let me, uh, let me begin by addressing a question that you may this morning be asking. And this is the question you might be asking. The question, Andy, why such a short section of Scripture this morning? That might be the question you're asking. Why such a short section of Scripture? Last week, we seemed to be building up a head of Last week, we seemed to be going a bit quicker. We took three larger blocks of Scripture. We even took them as a oneer last week. And now what have we done? We've slowed right back down again. And what do we have in front of us? But we have only five short verses of God's Word. Why such a short portion of Scripture this morning? Well, in the sermon preparation this week, Um, I came across a pastor from a a different part of the world in a very, very uh, different context, and this is what he did. Uh, He preached, apparently, on these five verses of Scripture, and he preached on them each Sunday for, wait for it, he preached on these five verses for five consecutive months. (laughs) Okay? So coincidentally, he began in May, round about this point in May, and he took these five verses, and every Sunday he went for it, and he was still going well into September. And these five verses of Holy Scripture, okay? Now, I'm not going to do that, although I admire, in a way, the sentiment there, and I certainly agree with what Dale Ralph Davis, that famous uh, biblical scholar, said about what we have in front of us this morning. He said, this section warrants great attention. Indeed, he said, this section you have in front of you, it warrants special attention from the Christian. Why? Because actually what we've got in front of us here are something of our beginnings, aren't they? I mean, I think we could trace what we do at St. Peter's back to a lot of different places in God's Word and in Scripture, but, but certainly we could trace it back to, to Luke chapter 6. In Jesus calling apostles, we have lots to learn. Why? Because here we see the beginning of Christian ministry. Can I say that again? As Jesus calls these apostles, what we see is the beginnings of Christian ministry. We see the beginning of Christian wit- witness to Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask you to please, if you've got a copy of Scripture, to turn uh, to Luke chapter 6 and verse 12, to turn there with me. There are a couple of copies of Scripture at the back if you want to run and get those. If not, on your device or an actual physical copy of the Bible, if you turn to Luke chapter 6. And let's note a few things that we have here. The first thing that we see is how the Lord prays, isn't it? How the Lord prays. Now, if if you were asked um, what this section of Scripture is about, I think you, like me, would be very quick to say this. Somebody asked us the big picture here. We're going to say, okay, in this portion of Scripture, Jesus, uh, he appoints apostles. Okay, there's the big theme, isn't it? That's the big moment. But perhaps you've noticed, even in the reading, that before that, we see something else. Do you notice that we we see Jesus spend much time here in prayer? 
Now, I've said to you before in this sermon series that Luke, so the author of this particular gospel, he shows a special interest in the prayer life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So more than the other synoptic gospels, Luke draws our attention to the prayer life of Jesus. And in fact, when you look at it and you analyze it, Luke's gospel is the, the only gospel where Jesus is recorded as praying at this particular point in his earthly ministry. What does that do? That, that highlights to you that we are supposed to pay special attention to this and, and to Jesus praying at this precise moment, okay? So, so this is what I want to do ever so briefly. Under this heading, I want us just to, in a word or two, just notice the location of the prayer, the duration of the prayer, I want us to notice that, and also the occasion for the prayer. You with me? Haven't lost you yet? No? What is it? The location of the prayer, the duration of the prayer, and the occasion of the prayer. So let's look at it. We've got, have we got verse 12? We do. We've got verse 12 in front of us. So what was the first thing? The location of the prayer. Where where is Jesus? Do we see there? So at this juncture, our Lord, he goes up to, he goes up to the mountain. That's the location. He goes up to, can I, can I ask? Why? Uh, is this prescriptive? Is this an example for us? Should you and I be going up the Sidlaws in our morning devotional? Is that or like the monthly prayer meeting? Like a Monroe at a time? It would probably do us a world of good from a fitness perspective, some of us. Certainly, is that, is that what's happening here? Well, lots of ideas have been given about why Jesus goes where he does here. So some people say it's because mountains in the Bible are the place of revelation, right? Or other people say, no, it's because going up the mountain gives us this lovely image of closeness with God, Jesus' closeness with the Father. I actually think it's so much more simple than that. Why does he go up a mountain? For solitude. Isn't that it? Jesus goes up, he goes, ascends this hill. Why? Because he, he, he needs to pray and he does not want to be disturbed. <laughs> Christian friend, is that not something that you and I perhaps ought to or can take into the week ahead? As some of us maybe try and get back on the wagon of regular, sincere prayerfulness. I mean, you and I live in a really odd time in world history. We, we live in this age of interruptions, uh, don't we? Like, you know, bursting populations and then devices everywhere you look. Interruptions from people, interruptions from phones. Should, should we not? Look and and learn from the Lord Jesus Christ here. And should we not obey what he goes on to say in Matthew chapter 6? What does he say to the church? When you pray, go into your room. Shut the door behind you. Solitude this week as we seek to to pray. We've got location. What was the second one? Duration, wasn't it? I think that maybe the the students uh, in the room maybe smile knowingly at this point uh, because it's for some of the students anyway and some of our pupils it's exam time a time and armed with caffeine our students enter the season of the all-nighter 
I think most of us can maybe remember things like that, can't we? Trying to cram in in the last remaining hours before an exam, an all-nighter. Is that not, in a sense, what Jesus does here? Did you notice it? Surely it stands out. Like Jesus ascends this hill clearly before it gets dark. So, so we are talking about before seven o'clock in the evening. And then Jesus descends the hill, you know, after it gets light. So let's say it's about six o'clock in the morning. What does he do be- between those hours of 7 p.m. and 6 a.m.? What does he do? For the whole time, he's praying. And, and the word that you have before you is a I was going to say it's an unusual word. It's not an unusual word. It's a unique word that you don't find anywhere else in the Bible. I think I'm right. And it's a word for the fact that all night Jesus is just just enduring in prayer, enduring in prayer. So I want to ask us as a church, I want to ask you, does that seem a little bit distant to us, this idea? Like we've got an all night prayer vigil, if you like, here. Does it seem incredibly alien to us at St. Peter's? If so, let me suggest that that feeling of remoteness you have as you read this should perhaps act to convict us and convict us of our sin, that prolonged times of prayer to a loving Heavenly Father, that that seems so remote and so alien like, surely it's a contributing factor to the spiritual state that we find ourselves in Scotland today. So we have location, we have duration, and then what was the last thing, the last element that we note? It's uh, the occasion for this prayer because there is a terrible corner on Perth Road. I'm going to go further and say that there is a dangerous corner on Perth Road, just where Hindford Street hits Perth Road. First thing in the morning, everyone going to work, all the kids being dropped off at school. It's treacherous. It's incredibly dangerous. So on the rare occasion that I'm walking my daughters to primary school at Blackness, I get to that corner. I find myself saying the same thing every time I do that. In fact, you all know what I end up saying to my, my daughters. We get to that corner. What do I say? Look both ways. Girls, look both ways. Well, as you and I try to establish, well, why is it that at this point in his ministry, Jesus ascends this hill for sustained prayer? We have to ask the same question here. We have to ask, we have to look both ways. Now, do you, do you see what I mean? I mean, yes, I think if we look back the way in Scripture, I think we get an idea, because most of you have been here for the previous uh, sermons. What have you seen? What have we noticed recently in Luke's gospel? Have you noticed that there's been section after section of opposition? We have, haven't we, with the Pharisees? In fact, there's been increasing opposition. So is that not part of it? Does our Lord not partly go up this mountain to ask for the grace to persevere in hostility? Christian friend, what are we saying but prayer as a godly response to antagonism. But then what's the phrase? Look both ways. Look both ways. And I think if we look ahead of us, we get crucial information because what is Jesus about to do? Come on, we all know it. What's Jesus' next move, his next step? Our Lord is just, to, uh, just about to appoint leaders for his church. I mean, this is a significant moment. 
I mean, he is about to choose men who are going to place crucial role in the plan of salvation. So why does he go up a mountain? And we all know the answer. He goes up the mountain to seek his father's will for a crucial decision that lies ahead. I'll say it again. He goes up to seek his father's will for a crucial decision that lies ahead. And I think all of us as Christians can see immediately a relevance to the Christian life here. I want to say this before we, we go there, though, and end there. Um, what I see in my own life and what I've seen countless times in pastoral situations over the years is a disconnect. I see it in my own life and I've seen it in your life. We're all in the same boat here. But there's often a disconnect between knowing that we need to seek God's guidance and will and prayer, a disconnect between that and actually you and I setting aside good time to, to really do that and pray. Does everyone follow? A disconnect between knowing that we've got to be seeking God for guidance and actually doing that. I mean, you, you know it in your own life. You, you know what we're like. We're, we recognize there's a big decision looming. And do you know what we're good at? We're good at talking about that decision, aren't we? Now, we're really good at soliciting advice from other people. And do you know what we're even better at doing? We're better at talking about the fact that we need to pray about it. I will tell people, yeah, we need to pray. We we chat about this, but what do we not do? Where do Where does it fall down? Where do we struggle? We so often struggle with actually doing that and going into the room and closing the door and seeking God in a sincere and honest way. Christian friend, if that's you this morning, if you have got a big decision in your life that's looming, do you see here where you need to go? Like if you think about Scottish church history, us Scots love a Sunday walk for decades, for generations. You know, we go to church, we eat some big food, we probably have a kip, and then we we like a a walk on a Sunday. If you're facing a real decision, you know where you need to go this afternoon? You need to go up the mountainside. You need to go up the hill. You need to bring it to your Father who loves you. And he's ready to hear from you. And you need to bring it to him in prayer. So we see here how the Lord, how our Lord prays. Second of all, uh, let's note this here, or we see here, how the Lord elects, how the Lord elects. And do you agree with me that this portion of Scripture seems dramatically fitting for us at St. Peter's today? Do you see how, why it's so suitable on the day that we're going to be ordaining later on uh, a new church leader, a new leader for the church on that very day. What does God do? God times things. So he brings you to the portion of scripture where Jesus ordains the first leaders of his church. I love that. That's, that's beautiful. That's gracious of God. But how does Jesus do this? How does he choose? How does he elect these, these, these apostles? Well, if we could put up verse 13, let's look at that together, shall we? Look at verse 13. How does Jesus do this? Can I just point out a few things to you? Do do you see that these these men are chosen from within a larger group? That would be the first thing. Do you see that? So, So Jesus comes down from the hill. What does he do next? So he calls everyone who is following him at this time. 
Now, we are quite early into Jesus' ministry in Galilee, but I still think it could be a large group of people, Dad. So it could be 50, could be 100, could be even more than that. And what does Jesus do? He chooses from amongst that group certain characters that he wants for this role. So it's from within a larger group. Then I want you just to notice the number of leaders that he chooses. It's a a Sunday school question, isn't it? Isn't it? Um, You can imagine it's part of a a kid's talk, can't you? And I'd ask the, the, the boys and the girls, how many men did Jesus choose to be his apostles? And I would leave it open to the kids and they would probably get the answer wrong. Uh, but we know, we can see it, it's 12, 12. But do we see the significance of that number? Do we see why it had to be 12? What our Lord is doing, I think, is, is okay, there's continuity, discontinuity, but our Lord is beginning something new, like a, a new community, I want to suggest a new nation. Can can you see that? That just as in the Old Testament, Israel could trace their beginnings right back to 12 men. 12 sons of Jacob from from whom tribes would rise up, a nation would form. Don't you see that right now at St. Peter's, we, we can do the same thing. Trace it back to, to 12 men. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it exciting as well? And isn't it a, a, a glorious thing to, to consider what it teaches us about our identity when we live in such an age of such confusion about these things? Who, who are we? What does Scripture say about you? In Christ, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation, something that transcends even being British, something that transcends even being Scottish. We are a holy nation in Jesus Christ. So we get the number, okay. Then I suppose most of all, I want you to notice the specific role that these men are are given or tasked with, because what are they called? It's not not just the 12 here, is it? You, You notice everyone, don't you, that it's not just the disciples not shepherds, not leaders. What's the name? There's the term we have called by Jesus apostles. Um, I just want to tell you what you already know. Us ministers are very adept at doing that. Um, You know, I'm sure, that the word apostle here is derived from a Greek verb, right? You've heard that from a pulpit before, have you? It's derived from a Greek verb, uh, to send, to send, I think. Most of us know that. I like the little extra detail that one scholar gives us. He says that the word was also linked to a Hebrew word. And it's actually a Hebrew role of the time, that of an official representative. So it's a word that is linked to the idea of an emissary, a word that's linked to that of a, a delicate. I suppose that a modern equivalent, what would it be, do you think? Like, I think perhaps the idea of a, a power of attorney, that perhaps captures it, doesn't it? Someone who is authorized to act on another person's behalf. Do you see that that sort of idea is underpinning this task, this role of an apostle? They are sent 
but they are sent on another's behalf. Whose behalf? They are sent on Jesus' behalf, or they will be. Now, I think what we can do is just marvel at that God's purposes. That though it was only ever the Lord Jesus Christ who could secure our salvation, when it comes to spreading the good news of the gospel, do you not agree with me that God perhaps could have used a variety of means? Only Christ could secure salvation as the God-man, but couldn't other means be used to spread this news? And what does God do? Look at this. God chooses men, he chooses people, fallen people, sinful people. We could linger there. But I'd love for you, Christian friend, to do this instead. I'd love for you to stare at the mirror that you have here in Luke chapter 6. The mirror in front of you. Because we all know that like an apostle was a unique role. Like had to be called by Jesus, had to have witnessed his life, death, and resurrection. I think we all know that. But 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 in these men, aren't we given a picture of what God has done for us? In these men, as Jesus comes down the mountain and, and, and he speaks to these men and he speaks to them about being apostles, don't you see something at least of what God has done with you? I think it's cause for for rejoicing. Jesus Christ loves you so much that he, like here, he has called you. He has elected you from from within, from out of a crowd. He's looked at you with love and elected you. And what else has Christ done? He loves you so much that he has chosen you, like here, for certain areas of Christian service. He's done that. And he loves you so much. What else has Christ done? Jesus Christ has sent you. Look at us in here. Each one of us as Christians, we have in the Great Commission heard that great word from God. Christ has said to us, go. Each one of us has been sent in a sense. And aren't we people who have from Christ in love received a new task, a new role? That by grace, each one of us in Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5 We are ambassadors for him. You are an ambassador for for Jesus Christ. Aren't we reminded here of the commissioning that we have received? You, me, it's amazing as it is. We have also been set apart for the service of Jesus Christ to act on his behalf. And then the third thing, we've seen how the Lord praise we've seen how the lord elects and then we see don't we who the lord chooses because we come to a list of names a list of names um when i started this sermon i I talked about a sermon series uh, from another chap in another part of the world that went on for a long time okay great fine The reason that that sermon series went on for as long as it did um, was the fact that the the preacher in question made a decision, and this was his decision, that he wanted to preach a full sermon on each of the names that you have got in front of you. So, uh, a sermon on uh, James, the son of Alphaeus, and, and so on, that was his decision to do that, right? Now, I'm not knocking it, but I'm not going to do that. But I do think 
We ought to pay heed to this list that we've got in front of us. God has brought you to this list this morning. Don't let it just wash over you or pass you by. So I'm going to ask you just to follow along with me as we just mention these names. Can you do that with me? Who do we have? If you look, verse 14 and 15, we've got Simon Peter. He is always mentioned first in any biblical list of the disciples or apostles. So Simon Peter had this prominent role amongst the 12, didn't he? Who else? You've got his brother, his brother, Andrew. And then you've got James and John, uh, they're brothers, but they're cousins, aren't they? They're cousins of our Lord, with their mother Salome being Mary's sister. Then, then we get to Philip. He's famous, isn't he? He's famous for, for having introduced Nathaniel uh, to Jesus, which I think probably explains who comes next in the list. Because you see this name Bartholomew? Uh, most scholars would reckon that that is a, another name for Nathaniel, the one who didn't think anything good could come out of, of Nazareth. Then comes a friend of ours, Levi, Matthew, if you like, and then Thomas, who tradition records as, as being the one who, who brought the good news of the gospel as, as far away as, as India. Then you've got Thomas. And then we've got James, son of Alphaeus. Now, that's not the Lord's brother who would believe much later on. And then we get to a guy with a great nickname, don't we? It's not Davy the Zealot or Stevie the Zealot, but we've got Simon the Zealot, perhaps because he was zealous. Or perhaps because he was maybe a member of the Zealot political party that existed in the first century world. And then we come to... Who is it? Judas, son of James. Most likely another name for Thaddeus. And I will leave it there for the time being. Now, what strikes you? Come on. We've gone through 11 of the 12. Now, what, what's a common denominator? What, what binds any of the... I wonder where you go with this. What, how deep do we go with it? What, what binds these, these people together? Or you might say, well, they're men. Aren't they a, a varied group? Would you say that? I mean, who have you got? You've got fishermen. You've got from fishermen to tax collectors and then on to political revolutionaries. <laughs> that's pretty varied. That's a, that's a wide bunch, isn't it? And, and maybe, maybe it's not that. Maybe what struck you there is how obviously flawed like, you know about their lives and who these people were. Doesn't that strike you a little bit? I mean, you have got doubters here, don't you? And you've got deniers, and you've got bad-tempered sons of thunder here, okay? So, yeah, they're flawed. This is, though, what I would want you to consider for a moment and notice. It is how spectacularly ordinary these men are. Isn't that true? These guys are unspectacular. I asked you a few weeks ago, if you were trying to set up a movement in the first century world, what sort of people would you try and enlist to help you? I don't know what your answers were. I know your answers didn't include these guys. 
There's no, there's no great scholarship here, is there? There's, there's no thought leaders. There's no movers and shakers. I mean, you think about who these guys are. By and large, all of them are pretty poor. I mean, even Levi has left behind his, his livelihood, hasn't he? Like, they're, they're poor. Where are they from? They're from Galilee. So socially, they're just shunned and pushed to the side. What does Acts 4 tell us? That they're viewed as being ignorant, just uneducated men. They couldn't be more plain, man. Just more, they couldn't be more ordinary. And yet, what does God do with them? God takes people like that and God uses them to turn the world upside down. I love this quote. Someone says that that never have there been a group of men who have done so much for the world and for the church as these men. And don't don't you sit there as a Christian so encouraged in your heart by that reality, that their ordinariness, how plain they are. Because you know what it's like. Like, what is it that stops us being ambitious for Jesus Christ or for being all out for Jesus Christ in in the way that we live and pursue holiness and the way we witness? Very often, it's our sense of our limitations, isn't it? Our perception of our limitations. But what does God remind you here? He reminds you that he really chose the the foolish things of this world to, to shame the wise, didn't he? God chose the weak things of this world to, to shame the strong. Do you know, when we come to these apostles and we leave, it's not like a school reunion. Have you ever been to a school reunion? Have you? Some people go to a school reunion and they come away so depressed. <laughs> they come to the school reunion, they go away thinking, oh, these people, look what they've done with their lives. It's amazing. Look how gifted and talented. And then there's me. And that's not what this is like, is it? We go and see these apostles. We come away inspired and enthused because what does God say to us? What are we reminded? We're reminded God uses people like us. He uses people like you. We're reminded here, it is not by might. It is not by power, but by my spirit says the Lord. And I'll, I'll close with this, a fourth thing, also briefly, because we've seen, you know, how the Lord prays, how the Lord uh, <laughs> elects, and then we've seen who the Lord chooses. I just close with who the Lord chooses. Part two. Because you can all see that we've missed a name. The most controversial of all the name Judas. Now, the meaning of this name here, this title Iscariot, we're so familiar with the meaning of that title Iscariot is is much debated. Now, interestingly, it could be one suggestion is that it's taken from an Aramaic uh, word for falseness, the false one. So it could be that, or it could be, I think, more likely a geographical idea. We're not sure. But regardless, is it not what Luke says afterwards that's more important? What does he say here? 
our Lord called Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, I wonder if this morning in here you struggle with that. Like, in a sense, it would be understandable, and, and you would not be alone. Many throughout the years have struggled with this. Can you see why? Jesus has prayed. Like, he has sought his Father's will in, in intensity and for hours about this decision. And what has he done? Jesus has ended up, he's ended up choosing someone who's going to betray him for a few pieces of, of silver here. Is it confusing for us? Has Jesus made a mistake? Well, no, and we have to bear in mind what we read elsewhere in Scripture to understand this. Although Judas is entirely responsible for his coming actions, we need to understand that those actions fell entirely within the sovereign providence of your God, your Lord. Do you understand? Do you see it? That our God, God the Father, he oversaw this decision-making, didn't he? Like God ordained the ordination. And we read in Acts chapter 2, Jesus was delivered up according to, now get these words, according to the definite plan of our God. The definite plan. Now, yes, doesn't doesn't that bowl us over? Doesn't that show you how much you're loved? God loves you so much that, yes, he he has sent his only son to to bear your punishment for sin. That's true. But it was all planned. From before the dawn of history, everyone involved in this, even Judas Iscariot, all of it planned. How much God must love you. I, I end with this. Because you and I face Judas, we stand looking at Judas Iscariot today. For the first time in Luke's gospel, I must end with a word of caution for you. A word of caution. Because what do you learn from Judas? I mean, think about his life. Like for the next few weeks, he's going to be in the company of Jesus. The next few months, he's going to travel with Jesus. For the next few years, he's going to serve Jesus. He's going to hear Jesus preaching. And what is he going to do? For, for, for a few readies, what does he do? He betrays Jesus. What is the lesson? Surely it is that it's not enough just to be close to our Lord. Proximity. Proximity to Jesus. It saves no one. We must believe in him. We must repent of our sin and put our trust in Jesus Christ if we are to be right with our God. So I ask you, have you done that? As you sit in St. Peter's this morning, have you believed in him? Have you believed in Jesus Christ? If so, be assured this morning, Jesus knows your name. He knows your name. You are Christ's. Christ is yours and forevermore. Friends, let's bow and let's pray.